Deaths during wartime don't always come on the field of battle. Sometimes tragedy strikes far from it. As it did January 14, 1969, the pride of the U.S. Navy, the nuclear-powered aircraft carrier Enterprise, had just left Pearl Harbor bound for the seas off Vietnam. The crew was in the midst of an operational readiness drill, meaning all aircraft were fueled up and fully loaded with rocket pods, sparrow missiles, and 500-pound bombs. A portable power unit called a Huffer, used to start jet engines, was too close to a Zuni rocket aboard an F-4 Phantom jet. Exhaust from the Huffer overheated the rocket, and it blew up, setting off a chain reaction of powerful explosions that took more than two dozen lives and created a wall of fire that looked like it might doom the Enterprise and its crew. Mike Osika was among the young sailors aboard. He was in the thick of it, fighting to save lives and save the Enterprise. This is Mike's story, and there's a special chapter to it. For over half a century, Mike had thought that a high school chum of his had been killed in Vietnam. But through his Honor Flight Chicago experience, Mike learned his friend was still very much alive. Get ready for their reunion. You graduate Chicago Vocational High School, and you're 17 then or 18? I was 17. I went in. Right out, I told my dad, as soon as I turned 18, I'm going in, and I went. I enlisted right away. Navy. Yep. And why'd you choose Navy? A couple of my close buddies I hung with in the neighborhood went. They both went in at 18, and when they went in the Navy, and I said, it must be the thing to do. So. And there you are. Yep. So you go to boot camp, Great Lakes. You come out of there, you go to California. Then you're assigned, your unit is assigned to the USS Enterprise. And yep. when you hear that, the Enterprise being the pride of the fleet and this legendary name in U.S. military history, what are you thinking? I'm going to be on the Enterprise. I'm thinking that I'm fortunate to be with an outfit that got to go on the Enterprise. You know, it's supposed to be one of the best nuclear carriers and all this kind of crap. And so I really didn't know much about it until we got on when our, all our aircraft was on and we were aboard and we started heading out of Frisco Bay. And then we're starting to investigate going, hey, this is pretty cool. Yeah, and there's like 5,000 5,000 guys at that time. So what's your job? Our job was basically loading bombs, missiles, guns, rockets, anything that was ordnance bound and when we got to the line, that's how we armed our planes, and off they went to the line. So let me take you then to January 14, 14 January 1969, and you're 70 miles outside of Pearl. You're heading for Vietnam, and what happens? You you did the night shift. Yeah, I was working nights. Uh, we did our own. We worked 12-hour shifts, and we were just getting ready to go down. It was. A little bit, a little after eight in the morning, we had all the planes armed, and all they had to do was pull the pins when it was time to launch. And this guy comes up with uh, his Huffer unit on an F-4, and we tried to tell him. And Huffer unit's got the exhaust that it, it's a unit that helps start the turbines on a on the jets. On the, on well, the A-7 don't need it, but the F-4s. The guys with okay. the so anyway, we tried to and we we told him you got to move this Huffer unit 10 inches. 
And he kind of looked at us and he kind of gave us, hey, F you. And I said, well, you got to move it because the rocket pods, the warheads are sticking outside the rocket pods. I said, we just got done with our shift after 12, 13 hours. Just move it 10 inches. It's all you need. And he kept up and I said, okay. I said, when you cook that rocket, you're going to be the first one dead. And that's what happened. And that's what happened. He overheated the head of a rocket pod and it shot across the, the flight deck. And the rest is history. It just cooked all the planes on the starboard port, fantail. And next thing I knew, it, uh, fire started, I think, about 8.18, 8.24, somewhere there. I was back up on the flight deck fighting a fire. Well, you had just turned in. You were going to catch some Zs. I was in my rack. And you're one level below the flight deck. Right below the flight deck. What do you hear? Well, I hear, well, once they, when General Quarters finally heard... I heard General Quarters, General Quarters, and we flew up to the flight deck. First, we were, we were supposed to muster at the shop, but on the way up, we seen what was happening. There was, you know, injuries, and they were in the catwalks, and we knew something was. So we went, ran to the shop real quick, and then we got out of hose, and the rest, we started fighting a fire. Well, there's an explosion before the fire, the first explosion, oh, yeah. and it's a whopper. Yep. Right? And you may not have heard it initially. No. But... You hear the subsequent explosions, yeah, right? Just, Th- these are these are big bombs that are going yep. off, boom, boom, boom. Yep. I think I I saw that uh, there were like eighteen detonations in fifteen minutes. It was just constant. So you're when you go up on deck and you see it's a wall of flame. What what are you thinking when you see that? I just hope to God I live. <laughs> I mean, it's it's you know you look at all the planes. You know what armament is on the planes. And you have the ability to try to save some, you know, how to disarm it, pin, repin it so it doesn't cook. And But, you know, once the fire started cooking and you just start fighting the fire and everybody else is just taking it, if they can get it to drop off the plane, they throw it overboard. I mean, you, we, we threw anything that wasn't tied down off so we can make room. This is a huge wall of fire and it's moving and it's consuming aircraft. And you guys all know, because you've been loading the bombs during the night, yep. that this is ordnance that could blow up at any time and take yep. your life. Yep. And it and it, they did blow up. Yep, and we lost 29 guys. 29 guys were killed. And I, don't, I can't even recall how many, there, there was a ton of them they got injured too. Describe for me what <laughs> it was like when you're on the line. You're holding with a whole bunch of other guys. You're holding the hose. You're training it. You're getting some direction from your commanders on deck. This is where you're going to direct the water. What was that like? It was good to have the commander actually was up up at the top of the island that he could actually see where the bigger flames were concentrating, and he can actually direct the crews. Whatever crew was closest, he would... He would, he would say, he would tell you the crew, turn your hose to the left, turn it to the port, turn it to starboard, because the whole fantail was already under flames. Both starboard and port were under flames up to the island. So we had some crews go up the middle of that, of that uh, from the island to the fantail, and they were fighting one side, and us guys were in the front fighting that up there, because those planes, you know, if you kept them, if you kept the bombs pretty cool, they wouldn't cook. But the flames happened so fast, and the ones that did blow just ignited. You know, they trapped pilots in their in their in their cockpits, and we couldn't even get to them.
So we just kind of, you know, whatever they told us to do, we that's where we concentrated and tried to get it under control. This was part of it. It was an operational readiness exercise that was underway. That's why the pilots were in the plane. They were ready to go to the practice target so we could qualify to go to Nam on the line. That's what this was all about. We had to qualify to go and drop bombs and ordnance and help fight the war. Could you see the pilots trapped oh, yeah. in the aircraft? Yeah, it was... Was there any way at all that you could get to them? Uh, eventually, they, we took hoses and just drenched the cockpit enough that we, and we had to break them up because the canopy wouldn't open. So we just kind of took them and dragged, dragged them out. That's all we could do. So some survived. Some survived. Some, some guys, unfortunate, got cap. They got, they got captured in their cockpit. It wouldn't open. The canopy wouldn't open. And you couldn't get to them. The flames were so intense; it was ridiculous. You, you could, you could feel the heat. Oh yeah. How close to the flames were you? Oh God, I'd be behind the JBD. I was two feet, maybe. I was right there. And you had what? What kind of gear? Did you, you? You went to bed, so you're probably in your underwear. I had no gear. I I took uh, some guy's clothes. I put on his clothes, and then we went up to the flight deck. And when we got on a hose, we had a hose. We had a, a nozzle man that was in charge of the nozzle, and then we direct, we just carried the hose wherever he needed it to go, and wherever he was instructed, and that's where the water went. I know you're, you're, act, you're reacting instinctively, and you're fighting a fire, but are you thinking at all that this is uh, the apocalypse, that the ship is gonna go down, the Enterprise is not gonna make it through this? I, I would imagine briefly all of us kind of thought that, but we had the power to stop it. You know what I mean? I mean, it, you're out there fighting for your life. You know, people are dying and stuff like that. So we just we just stayed as long as we needed to do it. We did it. You know, like I said, we finally got back into port. I think it was 8 o'clock, 8.30 that night. And it started at 8. It's 12 hours fighting a fire. And you you, it's either that or die. So we took the high road and says, we're going to beat this. And we got it under control enough where we were able to cripple back into Barber's Point. That's where we were and where they fixed it. Among the deaths, though, was Butchie, right? He Butchie was, Boulevard, my buddy. He was your buddy. What happened to him? Uh, when he, he, for some reason, he loved to hide behind the JBDs. That's where the uh, jet blast deflectors are. When the F-Force kicked in afterburner, he loved to be behind her because was, there was no wind. Anyway, when the fire started, we got on a hose that was there, I'm on one hose, he's on another hose, and I'm looking to my right, and Butchie's behind me on my left, and all of a sudden I hear this explosion, and I, I kind of duck, and I still got the hose, and I look over, and there's no Butchie. Butchie's dead. He got hit with a wing lock. Yeah. Yep, he didn't make it. But... And they, they come, they took him, uh, when, you know, there was the flight boss seen it, and he got a crew down there, and he took him down to sick bay, and yeah. last time I seen him. The explosions are blowing huge holes into the, into the flight deck. I mean, huge holes, and how thick is the steel on the flight deck? Oh, it's got to be anywhere from, I would say, 8 to 10 inches thick. 
peeled it like a beer can, like it wasn't even there. And because of those holes, there's a lot of fuel and water and everything else that's flowing down into the bowels of the ship. Yeah. And that presented some real problems, too, for fear that the fire would spread. JP-5, the fuel, is going down below. Yeah, I didn't even know that. I knew the flight deck was being opened up, but I didn't know anything that went on below decks because they had their own crews down there beside, you know, they had guys in the hangar deck and below decks to fight the fire. And it had to be the JBD, uh, not the JBD, but the uh, the guys fought that with whatever they had down down below decks. They, you know, they kept it under control. The, the big flames were mostly, I think, on a flight deck because they were, they were pretty intense. If anybody has seen those pictures, the video that's captured on board the Enterprise of the fire, it's a wall oh, yeah. of fire that's yeah. huge and it's moving. And, and quickly. Yeah. So, did, did, do you remember being fearful at any point? Or are you just oh, yeah. doing your job? Were you thinking? I was doing my job. I tried to do it the best I could. And we all thought, you know, if we don't do this, we're, we're all going to die. Because where can you go? You, either you jump or you fight the fire till, till the end. And that's what we did. And you have some assistance from the tin cans, the destroyers that are alongside. Oh, yeah. If it wasn't the for the tin cans coming and spraying from the from the port and starboard side and on the back of the fan, we would have, I believe we would have sunk because the fire was so intense we couldn't get back there. And they pulled up right alongside and just started pumping ocean water on the, the planes that were on fire near the, the fantail. And I think it's important to keep in mind that you're 18 years old then? 19? 18. 18. And how does an 18-year-old process this? Uh... <laughs> you process it the best you can. That's why you enlisted. You enlisted to do a job, and you were trained to do it, and that's what you do. Well, you actually process it much later in your life, I think, don't yeah. you? Yeah, once you get older, like now, you just kind of go, <laughs> what the hell did I do? But like I said, we, we wouldn't change it. You, somebody's got to fight it, and you're there. you got to get training, and... We made it through. That's what counts. I mentioned to you before that one of the guys who was on the ship was describing the scene in the sick bay. They're getting guys who were wounded. And there were 29 deaths. Over 300 guys yeah. were, were hurt. So the sick bay is kind of like a scene out of the Civil War where you've got a couple medics and he's got hundreds. A couple medics have hundreds of guys who are wounded to take care yeah. of. And that's the scene on board the USS Enterprise. Yep. Different decks. I mean, they had bodies in a in the gangway. I mean, in in, a, in the gangways, and they had bodies in whatever room they can put them in. And if you were a medic, you were running from body to body, person to person. It's you know, you got to try to alleviate the pain somehow. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I never got below decks during the fire until after we pulled into uh, Barber's Point that night, and then uh, we went on and got hammered <laughs> that we made it. It was one of those. Good luck. Yeah. So, what was it like when you finally got it under control? Did did the guy who's calling the shots for your squad with the, the hose team? Did he finally say, "I think we got this licked"? 
He was. He stayed pretty much on top of us. You know, being a bunch of eighteen-year-olds, and this guy was a chief or whatever, lieutenant commander, and obviously he's seen some of the stuff in the past. You know, being a bunch of young guys, you just he kept us focused, and that's what you know. And thank God for Chief Mack. He was our guy in our shop, the oldest. You know, and he kept us focused, and that's what we did. It was no more than that. He 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 knew how to keep us. I mean, he was like a grandpa to us. That's how, you know, Chief Mack was the best, too. But, you know, he said, he used to tell us all the time, if anything happens, you guys come together as a unit. This is what we got to do. And he preached that all the time from the day I went into the squadron in, in Lamore to, well, probably a day or two before the fire. He says, you got to be prepared because you never know. He says, it could happen any time. And it did. When the fire's arrested, finally under control, Captain's able to turn the Enterprise around, and you're heading back to Hawaii. It takes 51 days to make the ship right again. But when you're on your way back and you've experienced this apocalyptic situation, what are you saying to each other? Uh, first thoughts are, is this going to happen again? How do we stop it happening? You know, can we do something different than what we experienced but with all the with all the support we had from the from the military and the navy and the workers that were working on it they guaranteed that the ship would be better than ever and it was when you pulled but, in to pearl yeah uh, you had everybody waiting for you there they knew what had happened yeah. they were fantastic those people definitely helped took care of us food money clothes, whatever we needed, because a lot of us didn't have clothes. We didn't have nothing, and it was all gone. Now, the general public knows that there's been this awful fire, catastrophic results, lives lost, and your dad knows about this. He's seen the news, but he hadn't heard from you, and he thinks you're dead. Pretty much. And how much time elapsed before he realized that his son is alive? Uh, By the time he got notified, it was... Anywhere from five to seven days within that time period, he got a phone call from the Red Cross. Did he ever share with you how agonizing that was for him? He didn't have to. I knew. I knew. Yeah. And my cousins and everybody were there. They were, he said, your poor dad. He wouldn't eat, wouldn't sleep. When you finally saw him after all that, what was that meeting like? (sighs) Huh. It's like the honor flight. What am I? It's just, it's right up there together. You know, you got uh, somebody that loved you or raised you, and uh, no, it was the best. Gave you a big hug. I talked to him every day. Mm-hmm. It's my buddy. Yeah. That's all you could do. There's good comfort in that. Oh isn't yeah. yeah. Oh, he was okay. Yeah. He was good. Well, you're off the Enterprise, and then you get reassigned, and you're on another. You're on the Roosevelt, another carrier, and you go back to Vietnam. Vietnam. We went did our second tour on the Roosevelt, and then that was a flawless cruise. We did it another seven, eight months. We turned around and come back. 
But I wonder if you're still, when you hear noises, are, oh, yeah, are you're you jumping. haunted by uh, that? You're, yeah, you're, you're always wondering from that day it happened to, even when I went on the Ariskany to go to Med Cruise, you know, plane hits a round down or plane hits a deck a funny way, you're jumpy. Yeah. You're jumpy because it sounds always, you, you can't get rid of it. I can hear it to this day. You know, something goes on or a truck. You hear a sound that reminds you? Oh, yeah. That's yeah. freaky. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But I, you know, I, I focus on what, what it is. You know, if it's a truck dropping his bucket, or I don't know. You know, so I just, I'm pretty, pretty much on top of it now. I, I think, from what I've heard, talking to a lot of veterans that, who've been in combat or in your situation, a, a fiery incident that claims a lot of lives, that luck is a big part of it, and. You were pretty lucky on this oh, day. Yeah. yeah. The guys that that made it were all like we all hugged for days. Yeah. You know, we stuck together as a group and our training as a group got us through it. You continue to have contact with uh, at least one or two guys that were in your group, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, they're they're my heartbeat. Okay, so time goes by. You you did um, you did a four year tour active, and you did two more years on reserve. And you entertained the notion at one point of continuing your military. I thought about career. going in for twenty, but after all this, I have had enough after six years. Time to put I did your, my duty. Time to put your feet on terra firma. Yeah. Time to dip him in the ice bucket. <laughs> <laughs> But you did, um, you were in country in Vietnam. You were on the turf there for a while. And what was your mission then? Uh, we lost a plane. A uh, pilot had a punch out, and the plane flew to Chu Lai about five miles past the base. And back then, we couldn't get any replacement parts. And being ordnance, you need guns, whatever you can, you know, shoots for the bullets, whatever. So we were uh, canned off. The boat, and we went uh, in the Chu Lai. We salvaged whatever parts we could, put them, you know, get them, and uh, we left them on the base. And they, they shot them to the boat once we got back underway. So we had some parts, and we went back and landed on the on the, the cod. Was this carrier. kind of a special mission with yeah. designated crew? No, they just picked the guys that went with me were my crew. Like I showed you, my bomb crew on. So, and Chuck knew us pretty well. We, we knew each other, you know, movements. We knew what was next. And so that's easy to stay together and you can anticipate what needs to be done before somebody else has to think, oh, or maybe they're busy or so you just do it. Yeah. So, but the fact that you were on ground in Vietnam was significant for you in terms of your VA status. Uh, yeah, I had approved that it that I actually was sent there to salvage parts because of Agent Orange and all this other junk, and I got it verified. Which is to your advantage yep. later in life now, right? Yep. You had an acquaintance back in high school, Lou Batando. Louis. Louis. And you heard when you were in the military that he was in Vietnam, and you thought after he was wounded, word came back that he was injured in combat had part of his face 
disfigured, oh, yeah. needed plastic surgery. He's you, Superman. You thought he was dead. Well, I come back from after we did our Enterprise run and we got back in the States. I come home on my first leave. And, you know, we used to, I knew a lot of the guys went in and we used to keep in touch. And I asked one day about Louie. I said, hey, how's Louie doing? And everybody, nobody said nothing. thought that was kind of weird. So finally, one of the guys said, Louie got killed in action. I says, huh? I didn't investigate, which was my, I'm sorry about that, but I just, I just assumed, you know, the way things were going, if they say, because they were pretty close with him too, and they said he he got shot up, man, he's he's gone. So for 50 years, I'm as you know, I'm assuming Louis's gone, and then I get the I get the honor flight bio, and there's Louis's picture, and I'm going, this ain't funny, this ain't funny at all. And then I talked to uh, Paula and you and uh, Paul and. Uh, I said, okay, okay, give me his address, his phone, I, I want to call him. And sure enough, I got him on the phone. I was, he's, he's Superman, I'm telling you. When he went through it, nobody should, but he's still Louie. I mean, we've talked on the phone. I helped him about the honor flight. I said, be prepared. It's not a, it's nothing bad, but you're going to be overwhelmed. I, he's still overwhelmed, so. No, it's great that he's alive. It sure for all, is. For everything he went through, it's, man. Reports of his death were exaggerated, I guess. Huh? Three purple hearts and two bronze stars? Holy crap. Yeah. yeah. What I went through was nothing. No. He's the hero, I man. Differ with you on <laughs> He's that. the hero. Trust me. Trust me. The phone chat is fine, but after half a century, with one guy thinking the other guy's been lost in battle so long ago, you've got to get together, see each other. And so Mike and Lou did just that recently for lunch. And I got to listen in. How you doing? Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> God almighty, this has been 15 years. At, le at least. Maybe, I'm thinking uh, I 1966. Want to oh, okay. It's all right. That's how we used to do that when we had to play football. If we want to play for him, you got to kiss him in the Godfather. <laughs> How you doing, babe? Good. I can't complain. Everything's great. God, my, this is unbelievable. I when, I, when I seen your bio, my wife says, what's the matter? And I started to cry. And I said, this guy, what I was told years and years ago, I said, unbelievable. Well, my, my demise was well overrated. Well, like you said. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> when was the last time you guys saw each other? High school. Uh, yeah. It had to be 1965. You graduated. I graduated in January of 66. You graduated in, in 67. June of 67, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, uh, Patty, you guys, I'm a year and a half older than you guys. Yeah, how's she doing? She's doing all right. I see Patty. We were best friends. You you introduced Patty to yeah. Lou, right? Yeah. And, ever, I mean, Patty was dating one of Dom, you know, Dom Calamino. Yeah. He, sends, he wants me to give you hugs. When you were reading that bio, you must have been uh, freaking out when you oh, yeah. saw that he was still... Yeah. Oh no! I, I was I was freaking and I was grateful as all get up. My wife, I told her, I said, "Honey, this can't be true." She says, "What's the matter?" I explained the situation. That's when I called on her flight. I said, "Okay, wait a minute. Is this a joke?" I think I talked to Paul. I think it was. Is this a joke? And I explained to her, and then she got a hold of you, and I'm thinking, okay. I said, "I hope it is. I hope it is." I said, "It's kind of remarkable that." Uh, an organization can bring two people together after more than half a century. Yeah, you're oh, right. No, no doubt about that. 
even my bride said this. She goes, how did they pick you? I says, babe, I don't know. I says, they just started talking to me. That's all I can tell you. Because I, I didn't even sign up for it. This guy, uh, Terry Hardy, signed me up for it. And, and no particular reason why I wouldn't go. You know, I wanted to go to the wall before I died, obviously. But, you know. So then next thing I know, I get a call from him. And the guy goes, uh, yeah, you're going to go on the honor flight. I said, really? And he goes, yeah. I said, all right. And then he goes, May 11th. I goes, whoa, that's like three weeks away. He goes, well, you're scheduled. I said, all right, count me in, you know. Then a couple of guys come for the stories, the bio and that, and, you know, blah, 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 and that was it. And, and you coached him. And no, what I, to I didn't coach him. I, I knew he, he was – I called him. I said, Lou, this is me. And he went, holy shit. <laughs> and then I told him, I said, I heard you're going on the honor flight. And I said, all I want you to do is keep an open mind because you will not absorb this in just a, a couple of days. It's, I'm still I – met, I met a couple of guys the other day. And, of course, I had my honor flight button on and all that crap. And you go, oh, you're honor flight, huh? Yeah, oh, yeah. And they went off. They said, that's a, that's a waste. And I went ballistic. I said, don't don't badmouth something you don't know nothing about. And I started explaining. And the guy goes, really? I said, yeah. And this was at the post office. As I'm walking out, I'm yelling, get your, get your application in. And the guy goes, okay, okay. <laughs> I said, you know, you, you'll, you'll thank me if you ever see each other again. I said, this is the best because I never anticipated this in my lifetime. When we, when I got back, never, didn't care. I mean, we did our job. That's what that's what we signed up for. And when you were at the wall, I remember you saying you cried like a baby because oh, you found all the names of yeah. all the guys. Yeah. And actually, I got lucky because I had nine guys I had to track down. And when you touch the name, it it gives life to it. Well, none of my guys, I didn't have to get on the ladder. And I I, I thought that was odd because you see the ladders and. You know, what are they there for? Well, then it, then it becomes apparent. But all my guys were no more than head high. So I was lucky that way. Yep. And then Tony Nemeth, he was at the bottom of the wall. So that, yeah, so that, yeah. That was your longtime buddy, yeah. buddy. Yeah. 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 When you can physically touch the name, it just makes it better. It's I like mean, their, it's like their back. How does that? How does that make anything better? I don't know, but it does. It, it really does. It's, it's a different feeling. Really is. I mean, they're, they're, you can't put it into words. When I went out to the wall, I got one buddy that I talked to, and like Lou says, once you touch it, it's like they're there. It's like it's part of you again. It's hard to describe. It's it's, it's just I just I still don't put it into words. It's it's possible. Well, I'm so glad you guys have been able to get uh, you're able to get together here finally. <laughs> so am I actually. Yeah. I was, yeah. I've been anticipating this since I seen the bio, and I yeah. told Pammy, I said, God, I can't. I'm. It's like I'm a section of me is back. Yeah, something you lost. And then when I see his bio, I told my wife, "No joke, this is not funny. This is not funny. I'm an old man. I can't take this crap." Well, you guys are, are really flying back in time, then, aren't oh, you? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, boys, time to eat, right? Manjustatijit, as my grandma was saying, right? Manjustatijit, Louis knows. Mind, shut up and eat. Thanks to Lou and Mike for allowing me to be a fly on the wall. Great to see the boys back together. Lou was on HFC flight 101. Mike was on number 100. It's often said that this one day experience can change lives. Mike would endorse that.
we wanted to be together. There's three of us. It was Jack Hitz, Dom Calamino, and me. We grew up together. We're cousins. And we got our applications in, and the rest is history. I mean, Honor Flight went through hoops for us to get us together, get my son to be my guardian, Jack's son to be his guardian. I mean, it was, it was I, I still can't, I still can't explain it. It's just, it's just unbelievable. What was a moment for you when you were in D.C. on the flight, or on the flight itself, that was particularly moving for you? Uh, both of so many of them, just to see the camaraderie of all the vets that were on this honor flight. I mean, all of us, every time we got off the bus, we're shaking hands, we're hugging. You know, it's like the crowds and the people and they couldn't say they couldn't say enough. They couldn't do enough. They, you know, and the and the honor the honor flight crew, they were just they're phenomenal people. You guys, you guys don't get enough credit. I'm telling you. But uh, now we know, get to watch this. Yeah, you that's get, the reward. Yeah, well, believe me, it's unbelievable what you guys do and how you do it. All right, when you walk back into Midway, and you're walking the in front of the crowd. I'm, I'm, I couldn't think. I couldn't even speak. I, I knew there was going to be people because of Uncle Right, Uncle previous Tom, experience, yeah. yeah. But I never realized when you get off, when you step up off the plane and you go up that gangway and there's f firefighters and policemen and military. And I mean, it's just, just, the, just to see that there for us, it was like, holy crap, this is unbelievable. And then we walked through the airport and it's getting bigger and bigger. I, you know, I said, man, this is, you know, it's just, it's hard to, I still can't put it into words. It was great, man. I'm telling you, it is just unbelievable what you guys do. I appreciate that. But we're here because of what you guys did. Well, somebody's got to do it. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it, Paul. Thanks so much. All righty. you found today's honor thank inspire episode to be moving and meaningful if you did please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts the impact honor flight chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors to support our mission to find our veteran application to volunteer or simply for more information please visit us at honorflightchicago.org